0: Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this episode, we're going to explore the history of gender reassignment surgery, which is in fact not one operation, but rather many, and demonstrates the progression of surgery in terms of the detailed anatomical knowledge, use of surgical techniques like microsurgery, and contribution to the state of the art by physicians and researchers from around the world, as well as the progression of society in general and the care provided to transgender patients there is so much interesting material to cover that you may want to break it up over a couple of sessions. I'll indicate a good spot to pause around the halfway mark. And there's a bonus suture tail too. Now that's a lot to cover, so let's make some progress in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Let me begin by saying that, like many of you, I'm sure, my training involved very little learning about transgender patients and the unique healthcare requirements needed to support and care for them. And that may be changing, but if you're like me, you'll be learning right alongside me. So please be patient with me as I try to use the correct terminology and pronouns as I am doing my best to get it right. And it is my hope that by covering this topic, I can help, in a small way, to further the discussion of transgender rights and help people in the medical profession have a bit more context in which to understand the transgender experience with the healthcare system. Although transgender patients have been known to medicine for a long time, which we'll get into in a minute. It is only recently that transgender patients have been treated with dignity and respect by the medical profession, reflecting the growing acceptance of trans people by society. For example, in 1989, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services excluded transsexual surgical treatments from coverage by Medicare, stating that it was too controversial, experimental, and medically risky, and I would hazard a guess that this would be the same for most national healthcare care systems at the time. It was not until 2014 that the department concluded that this policy was outdated and did not reflect current evidence or standards of care. And this did not come about because of a sudden enlightenment by policymakers, but, as in many instances of societal progress, it required the courts of law to address this. And it took the courage and tenacity of a 74-year-old retired Army veteran named Danae Milan to force the issue. Born male as Dennis Milan. She first became aware of her gender identity as a child in the 1940s. She tried to overcome this awareness by joining the high school football team, enlisting in the army, and working in the police force. After five children and three marriages, Danae began to live full-time as a woman at the age of 40 but could not afford the operations. It wasn't until she was 75 after years of advocacy that Danae became the first person to have gender confirmation surgery under Medicare. Fortunately, people now don't have to wait decades for the care they desire. So let's take a look at what exactly is involved in transgender healthcare with a focus on the surgical requirements and have a look back on how we got to today. It's estimated that between 0.4 to 1.3% of the population experiences what is known as gender dysphoria. Now that term replaces the older term, gender identity disorder, due to the stigma of the term disorder. This replacement only occurred in 2013 with the release of the DSM-5, which, for those of you unaware, is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and is considered the principal authority for psychiatric diagnoses. Now, the term dysphoria comes from the Greek dys, meaning bad or hard, and ferrin, meaning to carry. So essentially, hard to bear. And that is important, as gender dysphoria is different from gender nonconformity, as the American Psychiatric Association, states that the critical element of the former is clinically significant distress. And to this point, according to a survey of transgender people done in 2015, 39% of respondents experienced serious psychological distress in the month prior to completing the survey, compared to 5% of the general population, and 40% of respondents had attempted suicide in their lifetime, which is nine times the rate in the general population and one-third had at least one negative experience accessing health care, and 23% avoided seeking needed care out of fear of mistreatment. While this is just one snapshot, it highlights the significant mental distress associated with gender dysphoria. And one last note on terminology before we get into the aspects of care of transgender patients. In May of 2019, the World Health Organization, which uses the term gender incongruence, Voted to no longer consider this diagnosis a mental health disorder, but rather moved it to the chapter on sexual health in their global manual of diagnoses. The reasoning behind this was in part to depathologize transgender patients and to remove the stigma of a mental disorder label. Now, this change will come into effect in January of 2022. For the purposes of these episodes, I will continue to use the term gender dysphoria, as this is the current term used in the medical literature, but with the acknowledgement that terminology will continue to evolve in the future. And as one reference paper put it, gender dysphoria is not a pathological state, but instead a condition of distress. So let's talk about the current state of care for transgender patients, go through some early history of treatments in general, and then cover some specific operations. Now there are three pillars of care for transgender patients. Psychotherapy and or counseling, hormonal treatment, and surgery. Every patient's needs are different, and not every transgender person will necessarily want all three, but as this is a History of Surgery podcast, we'll focus on the surgery, with the understanding that there is far more to transgender medicine. In fact, the standard of care is to have a referral from mental health professionals for certain surgeries, and surgeons must know about hormonal therapy status, as this can affect surgery too. For example, a minimum of one year of cross-sex hormone treatment is recommended before genital surgery and breast augmentation. So as you can see, it is truly a multidisciplinary approach. Now, there are a large number of potential operations, many of which are unique to transgender medicine. And I'll admit I learned some new medical terminology while researching this episode. First, let's consider surgery for trans women. And to clarify, that term refers to patients whose natal or birth gender is male and are transitioning to female. There are a number of procedures that can be classified as facial feminization surgery. For the forehead, there is frontal bossing shave, frontal sinus setback, hairline advancement, hair transplantation, forehead shortening, and brow lift. A side note, frontal bossing means a prominent protruding forehead from the old French boss, meaning a swelling, hump, or tumor. Other facial surgery includes rhinoplasty, changing the shape of the nose, periorbital rejuvenation, cheek augmentation, lip augmentation, and upper lip shortening. And here is where we get into some less commonly used terms. Uh, ritidectomy, which is the fancy name for facelifts, which comes from the ancient Greek word rhytis, meaning wrinkle. So it literally means to cut out wrinkles. That's a new one for me. And here's another, gonial angle shave, which means to change the shape of the angle of the jaw or mandible. Gonial comes from the Greek word gonia, which just means angle. And to change the shape of the chin, there is genioplasty from the Greek word for chin. And to complete the facial contouring, there is thyroid cartilage shave, which is essentially to reduce the characteristically male protuberance, which we colloquially know as the Adam's apple. Now let's take a quick detour here, as I discovered some interesting trivia. If you're like me, you probably grew up thinking that it's called the Adam's apple because of the biblical story from the Garden of Eden, where Adam took a bite of the forbidden apple given to him by Eve. So God made a chunk of apple get stuck in Adam's throat as a reminder of his sin and this was passed on to all men ever after. Simple, right? Well, the truth is far more complicated and has really nothing to do with Adam or Eve or the Garden of Eden. The term Adam's apple has been used in English since at least 1625 and has analogous terms in other European languages. But before it was used as an anatomical name, Adam's apple was a term for several edible types of fruit such as plantains, pomelos, and citrons, and During medieval times, European writers used Latin variations on this, like pomum adam, for various fruits like the pomegranate that were considered to be in the category of fruits of paradise from the long-lost Eden. And as we've seen in previous podcasts, medieval Arabic physicians were at the forefront of medicine at the time. They actually used pomegranate as the name for the prominence of the thyroid cartilage in the neck, whether due to some physical resemblance of the fruit or something symbolic. Either way, it is thought that European writers saw that designation in Latin translations of Arabic works, which would be pomum granatum, and then applied the Latin pomum ademi to the same body part. And to confirm this, one author of a late 16th century anatomical work stated that both pomegranate and Adam's apple were being used in the common language to refer to the larynx. So there you go. It is not a reference to a Bible story, but rather from Latin translation of Arabic medical texts, which called it the pomegranate back to the matter at hand. So breast augmentation is obviously a common part of surgical care and as it is not substantially different from the cosmetic procedure done in cis female patients, cis meaning same for patients whose personal identity and gender corresponds with their birth sex, and so we won't go into detail. This is also true of body contouring, which is essentially targeted liposuction or fat removal and fat transfer or grafting to create a more typically female body shape. Finally, There are the more complex surgical aspects and an area which we'll get more into later, which is genital surgery. This includes orchiectomy, which is removal of the testicles, clitoroplasty and labiaplasty, which is the surgical creation of a clitoris and labia, and of course vaginoplasty. This is the creation of a vagina and the two main ways of doing this are penile inversion surgery or the creation of an intestinal conduit. We'll get into the history of these operations a bit later. And one last note. To achieve a higher pitch of the female voice, some patients undergo shortening of the vocal cords along with speech therapy. So that essentially covers the majority of, of operations for trans women. For trans men, and again to clarify, these are patients whose birth gender is female and are transitioning to male. Many of the surgeries for the face are similar, just with different objectives for the underappearance, including rhinoplasty, genioplasty, remember, that's the chin, and gonial implants to make the angle of the jaw more prominent. For the chest, there are a few operations, including subcutaneous mastectomy, which is removal of breast tissue, which may also include repositioning of the nipple, body contouring as described before, and pectoral implants to create the appearance of more prominent chest muscles. Genital surgery includes hysterectomy and oophorectomy, which is removal of the uterus and ovaries, and colpectomy, the surgical removal of the vagina. Now, you may have heard of colposcopy, which is part of the pelvic exam, using a speculum to inspect the cervix, vagina, and vulva. Same root word, again Greek, kolpos, which means womb. The next set of surgeries is the creation of a phallus or penis, and there are two main ways of achieving this. The first, called a metoidioplasty, is the technique of lengthening of the clitoris following hormone therapy, which itself makes the clitoris hypertrophy or enlarge. The urethra can then be lengthened, ideally allowing for micturition, which is peeing, while standing. As well, the native clitoris itself contains erectile tissue, but this may be insufficient for penetrative intercourse. And this operation does not allow the placement of an erectile device. The alternative is called a phalloplasty, which is the creation of a phallus, meaning penis, from a donor site, most commonly a radial forearm free flap, along with urethral reconstruction. And this procedure does allow for erectile devices. Both surgeries would typically include the insertion of testicular implants as well as the creation of a scrotum called a scrotoplasty. And did you think I forgot to cover such a unique name like metoidioplasty? If you are a regular listener, you know I wouldn't let such an opportunity pass by. It is a compound Greek word from meta, meaning move towards, and oideon, which means male genitalia. Pretty clever. So, that is a good overview of some of the unique surgical issues facing transgender patients. Before we get into the history of some of these procedures, I thought we'd take a quick overview of the history of transgender care in general. While there is a lengthy history of people suspected to be transgender, one example sometimes cited is someone we've covered in a previous episode, number 84, called The Secret Identity of Dr. James Berry, we will focus on known practitioners and programs that aim to treat known transgender patients. The first is Dr. Harry Benjamin. Born in 1885 in Berlin, Germany, and he would go on to live to be 101, Benjamin visited the U.S. in 1913. The liner carrying him back to Germany was intercepted by the Royal Navy, and he was given the choice of going to a British internment camp as an enemy alien or to return to New York City. He chose the latter, smartly, and started a practice there and later practiced in San Francisco in the summers, eventually becoming an endocrinologist and sexologist. Benjamin was sometimes called the persistent pioneer, as he essentially helped to create a new area of specialization in which he spent the last 30 years of his career practicing from 1948 to 1978. It all began with a chance referral from a colleague, Dr. Alfred Kinsey, in 1948, and over his career, Dr. Benjamin would care for over 1,500 patients. This first patient was a 23-year-old man known as Van, who had been born male, but had been living as a female since the age of three. Benjamin tried to find a urologist in the U.S. willing to operate on his patient, but was unsuccessful and so sent him to Germany for the only operation available at the time, castration and penile amputation. However, after three trips to Europe between 1953 and 1958, his patient ultimately had a vagina constructed, which was lined with skin from the thigh. Now, at this point in time, the treatment of transgender patients included things like psychotherapy, shock therapy, religious training, hypnosis, lobotomy, and commitment to an asylum. Not the proudest moment for the medical establishment. Now, Benjamin wrote a trailblazing book called The Transsexual Phenomenon, which was the first of his kind on the subject. And in it, he made a radical proposal. What if, instead of treating their minds... instead helped trans people to change their bodies. But it would take another of his patients to bring transsexualism to the world's attention. His seventh transgender patient, Christine Jorgensen, would become one of the first to make headlines. Born male and named George Jorgensen, she was an American veteran of World War II. In 1950, she went to Denmark to seek out gender reassignment surgery, spending two years there where she received hormone therapy, psychiatric evaluations, and surgery to remove her male genitalia. Her story made headlines around the world. And soon after her return to the U.S., the New York Daily News ran the following headline on December 1st, 1952, quote, XGI becomes blonde beauty, operations transform Bronx youth, end quote. Jorgensen changed her name to Christine, an homage to her Danish endocrinologist, Dr. Christian Hamburger, and in May of 1954, completed her transition by receiving a vaginoplasty performed by doctors Joseph Angelo and Harry Benjamin. Now, there's another headline-making patient, much to their chagrin as we'll see, this time a trans man who underwent the first phalloplasty by a very famous plastic surgeon. Born Laura Ma Dillon to the 7th Baronet of Lismullen in Ireland, and this will become important later, he would later recall a very early desire to be male. His mother died when he was an infant, and so he was sent with his brother to live with their aunts. At the age of seven, Dylan asked one of the aunts if she would, quote, take him to the blacksmith to be made a boy, end quote. By 1938, Dylan began his first course of hormone therapy after graduating college. This was provided by a Dr. George Foss, but the patient-doctor relationship was quickly ended after a psychiatrist Foss had arranged for Dylan began to talk about the young woman who wanted to be a man at dinner parties. Foss provided Dylan with a number of testosterone tablets to try, and this did lead to some male characteristics, including facial hair. Now, Interestingly, although experiments on the effects of testosterone date back to the late 1800s, full-scale steroid research and development programs didn't happen until the 1930s, with three European pharmaceutical giants. So Dylan was experimenting with something very new. But the next step in Dylan's transition occurred through serendipity. He had a couple of episodes of hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, leading to a loss of consciousness, the second of which landed him in the Royal Infirmary. It was there that Dylan met a plastic surgeon, a rare entity in the 1940s, who agreed to perform a bilateral mastectomy, or removal of breast tissue, provided a doctor's note to change his birth certificate, And perhaps most importantly, refer Dylan to the famous British plastic surgeon, Dr. Harold Gillies, who essentially created the field of plastic surgery while repairing injuries on soldiers during the First World War. I should probably cover him in a future episode. The reason Dylan was referred to Dr. Gillies was in part due to his experience in reconstructing genitals on wounded soldiers. In fact, his work with the war wounded prevented him from helping Dylan until World War II was over. After first meeting Gillies, Dylan entered medical school at Trinity College in Dublin under the new legal name Lawrence Michael Dylan. While still in school, Gillies began a series of 13 operations over the span of four years to create a penis, and by 1949, Dylan became the first trans man to receive a successful phalloplasty. In his words, quote, the world began to seem worth living in. End quote. And in a clever move, Dr. Gillies had given Dylan the diagnosis of hypospadias a congenital condition where the urethra opens on the underside of the penis rather than the tip to conceal the true nature of this experimental surgery and to protect Dylan. The phallus was not functional sexually, which Dylan himself described as, quote, a semi-erect, mostly numb sexual organ that resembled a small party balloon, end quote, but he was able to urinate through it. Dylan published a book during this time called Self, a Study in Ethics and Endocrinology, which was published in 1946, and covered a broad range of topics, including transgender issues. This caught the attention of Roberta Cowell, born Robert Cowell, who exchanged letters with Dylan. We'll continue their tale in a moment, but first, let's meet Roberta. Born male in 1918, her father was a surgeon in the Royal Army Medical Corps in World War I. Growing up, she attended an all-boys school and became interested in car racing, and even competed in the 1939 Antwerp Grand Prix. She joined the Royal Army Service Corps in 1940 and transferred into the Royal Air Force in 1942, first serving a tour with the frontline Spitfire Squadron. Then later she flew a typhoon for photo reconnaissance. In November of 1944, while flying over German airspace, she was shot down. Unhurt, Cowell was captured by German forces and following two unsuccessful escape attempts ended up in a POW camp for five months. As the war neared its end, food ran low in the camp, and she lost 50 pounds. Cowell also reported capturing stray cats in the camp and eating them raw. (coughs) After being released, she returned to England and divorced her wife in 1948. By 1950, Roberta began taking estrogen, but still lived as a man. She soon thereafter discovered Dylan's book and made contact, the two of them first exchanging letters and then meeting in person. She convinced Dylan to perform an inguinal orchiectomy, or removal of the testicles, while he was still a medical student, putting his ability to get a license at risk, but it was successful. Interesting historical note, part of the reason this operation was so dangerous, besides being done by a medical student without supervision, was due to an obscure common law called the Mayhem Statute. This made the intentional maiming of another person illegal. Specifically, it originally consisted of the intentional and wanton removal of a body part that would handicap a person's ability to defend themselves in combat and require damage to an eye or limb. Cutting off the nose or ear was considered not sufficiently disabling. However, it was later expanded to encompass any type of mutilation, disfigurement, or crippling act done using any instrument, which is pretty vague. But you can see how with this expanded definition, surgeons could be charged for performing these operations. It seems strange to call the mayhem statute, as today we use mayhem to mean havoc or chaos, pandemonium. But it comes from a word in Old French, Mahain, which means injury, harm, or damage, the same root that gives us the word maim. Anyways, following this operation, Dylan introduced her to Dr. Gillies. On May 15, 1951, he performed a vaginoplasty on her predating Jorgensen by almost a year. Amazingly, Dr. Gillies had figured out how to do the procedure by practicing on cadavers. By this point, Dylan had fallen in love with Cowell and proposed marriage, thinking he'd found a kindred spirit and likely one of the only people he knew that could understand him. Sadly, Cowell did not feel the same way and rejected Dylan's proposal. So now let's pick up Dylan's story. After graduating from medical school in 1951, he initially worked in a Dublin hospital before becoming a ship surgeon in the UK's Merchant Navy. He served for seven years until another event altered the course of his life. In 1958, his brother died, leaving the baronet position open. Now, this led to a problem as the peerage accounts by two leading authorities differed. One claimed the recently deceased baronet of Liz Mullen had a brother. The other claimed a sister. The English newspapers broke the story, and Michael Dillon's secret was out. The Sunday Express ran the story under the headline, The Strange Case of Dr. Dillon. The publicity ended his naval career, and he traveled to India and became a Buddhist monk, eventually dying in a hospital in Dalhousie, India, on May 15, 1962, at the age of 47. Now, let's end this somewhat tragic end with a quote from Dillon's book. Quote, Where the mind cannot be made to fit the body, then the body ought to be remade to fit the mind. End quote. Now we should acknowledge Johns Hopkins Hospital, which founded the first academic gender identity clinic in the 1960s, opening on November 1st, 1966, to be exact, under the guidance of Dr. Milton Edgerton, chief of plastic surgery, who had been seeing patients with complications following gender-confirming surgery done abroad. Medical psychologist, John Money, psychiatrist, Norman Nor, and endocrinologist, Dr. Claude Miguel were recruited to help run the clinic and strict screening criteria were developed to identify patients for surgical therapy. Now, some of the steps taken will seem antiquated and frankly bizarre, but must be understood in the context of the times. For example, in the application form, police records were also requested, because at the time, individuals could be arrested for cross-dressing in public. Part of the assessment included encephalograms, or x-rays of the head, to exclude temporal lobe tumors, Now, I had to do a bit of digging on this one, but there are a number of papers dating back to the 60s and 70s looking at sexuality and sexual orientations in patients with brain injuries or temporal lobectomies. And some reported even changes in sexual preference. So, presumably, they were looking for an organic cause of transsexualism with these x-rays. Remember that the understanding of transgender patients was at an early stage. Now, while the clinic ran for a decade, only 32 patients eventually underwent surgery. And while it served as a model for other centers to create such services for transgender patients, it was also used for discrimination. You see, a long-term follow-up study of patients who had undergone gender transformation surgery compared their outcomes to a cohort of transgender patients that did not have surgery and found, quote, sex reassignment surgery confers no objective advantage in terms of social rehabilitation, although it remains subjectively satisfying to those who have rigorously pursued a trial period and who have undergone it, end quote. This research laid the groundwork for the Medicare ban we covered earlier, even though Dr. Edgerton himself disagreed with the conclusions. Interestingly, with the freeze in treatment and research that was the result of this ban, other countries continued to advance the field, including Belgium, the Netherlands, and Thailand, leading to American patients seeking help abroad. In 1969, a philanthropist named Reed Erickson, who had been a patient of Dr. Benjamin's, funded the first international symposium on gender identity which led to the formation of the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association, created in 1979. By 2007, this became the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which we'll come back to near the end of the podcast. And, as I had promised, this seems like a good spot to take a break as we're about halfway through. Okay, so now let's get into a bit more of the technical aspects of some of the gender reassignment surgeries. We will cover vaginoplasty, metoidioplasty, and phalloplasty. Let's begin with vaginoplasty. While this is the most commonly used term in the medical literature, it seems for this procedure it is rather vague. Technically, any surgery that changes the vagina can fall into this category, and so I prefer the more specific neovagina, but even that can have a few different meanings, including reconstructive procedures for congenital abnormalities. But we'll stick with vaginoplasty for the purposes of the podcast, with an imagined asterisk noting my very mild protest. The earliest attempts at creating a vagina surgically occurred in 1931, which involved inverted, non-genital skin grafts draped over a sponge mold that sat between the rectum and urethra. By the 1950s, surgeons were using penile skin grafts and flaps. The method that is used to this day was developed around this time, called the Penile Inversion Operation by the pioneering surgeon, Georges Borot, and we'll come back to him in a minute. In 1974, the colon was used in what is called a pedicled intestinal transplant vaginoplasty. These are the two main operations used today, and each has its advantages and disadvantages. Using bowel creates a self-lubricating neovagina and allows for greater depth and a reduced risk of stenosis, a frequent problem with penile inversion that requires the patient to manually dilate the neovagina frequently. The disadvantages of using bowel include excessive discharge, prolapse, and the inherent risks accompanying abdominal surgery. Now on to Georges Bureau. Born on September 10th of 1910 in Tarbes in the Haute Pyrenees of France while his parents were on vacation visiting family, he grew up in Algiers, the capital city of the French colony of Algeria. His parents were schoolteachers, and as a child, Georges wanted to be a commercial marine officer. However, likely at his parents' behest, he reluctantly went to medical school instead at the Algiers University of Medicine, then underwent training in gynecology and obstetrics at the maternity of Mustafa Hospital in Algiers. In 1940, Dr. Perrault opened an office in Casablanca, the largest city in Morocco, at the time a protectorate of France, after following his wife to be, Jeanne. Bois Vert there, where her parents had a farm. She assisted him in operating a clinic on the third floor of a classic colonial building. Just two years later in 1942, on a Sunday morning in November, U.S. Marine troops landed in Casablanca, and Dr. Boreau was nearly killed by a 10-kilogram piece of shell while providing medical care to badly burned and wounded French sailors. His life was saved by a branch of a tree that protected him from the shell fragment, and he would keep this piece of metal in his office as a reminder of the finiteness of life, a sort of memento mori. In early 1943, Barreau left North Africa to serve as a military surgeon, seeing action at the French island of Corsica and in Italy. Upon returning to Casablanca, he and his wife built the Clinique du Parc, which opened in 1952. This was a five-story building, which was attached to the office and family's private quarters, which he stated was an order quote, not to distance himself from his patients, end quote. In addition to its elegant entrance on a prestigious avenue, it also had a more discreet entrance off of a side street for his gender reassignment patients. The clinic contained operating rooms, a surgical floor, a 15-crib nursery, delivery rooms, and patient rooms. Now before we get to his development of the vaginoplasty, I do have to relay one great story about Dr. Barreau, which demonstrates his ingenuity. He was inspired by the Arab habit of placing pebbles in the uteruses of their camels to prevent them from getting pregnant, and so developed a human intrauterine device, or IUD, made of nylon fishing line in the 1950s. It would be 15 years before the first American IUDs became commercially available in Europe and Africa. But back to the matter at hand. Barreau did not get involved in much of the care I covered earlier, that is, part of the comprehensive care of transgender patients... But rather saw himself as a technician. His international patients would arrive in the afternoon at the clinic and would be admitted right away, with surgery being performed either that same evening or early the next morning. He began performing vaginal plasties in 1956 and by 1974 had a series of 800 operations, considered the largest series in the world at the time. His first took nearly three hours to complete, But at the height of his practice, Dr. Barrow was performing five to six vaginoplasties a week, each taking no longer than 60 minutes. So now let's walk through the basic steps of the procedure. Barrow described the procedure as two successive parts. The first was the creation of a space between the prostate and the rectum, and the second was the lining of the space with penile skin after the latter had been separated from its contents. An incision was made from the anal area through the scrotal raphae which is the line on the scrotum that goes along the midline, dissection of the penile components, and then separation of the rectum and prostate by cutting the ligaments between the internal portion of the urethra and rectum. He specifically made a point of ensuring that the posterior aspect of the prostate was not damaged to optimize the possibility of postoperative orgasm. The space would be expanded by blunt dissection and considered complete when either two fingers or a vaginal retractor could be admitted easily. This was the more dangerous part of the operation, and Barreau stressed the importance of repeated intrarectal inspection to make sure there was no damage to the rectal wall. The skin tube was then formed by removing the erectile tissue from the penis and removal of the testicles, and then closing the distal edge of the penile skin to create a blind-ended tube, then inverted into the space that had been created. The urethra was then brought out from a small incision in the lower abdominal skin just above the neovagina. Patients would stay... Around two weeks in the clinic, and contact with the outside world, was discouraged. Once they were able to walk around, many patients discovered they were not alone in the ward, with one former patient stating, quote, How many there were of us, I do not know, but we were of several varieties. We were Greek, French, American, British, end quote. Borough continued his work at the Clinique du Parc until December 17, 1989, a Sunday, when he drowned outside of the harbor when his boat ran out of fuel in stormy weather. His body was discovered five days later. And that was the story of Dr. Barreau and his clinic in Casablanca that provided a port in the storm for so many transgender patients. Next up, we will cover female to male transgender genital reconstruction. Let's review the history before getting into some more specifics of the operations available today. In 1936, a Russian surgeon named Nikolai Bogoraz pioneered the first functional neophallus, or new penis, on a 23-year-old male whose penis had been severed at the root. He did this using a left-sided tubed abdominal flap and autologous rib cartilage, meaning creating a penis out of a portion of abdominal skin and giving it shape with a part of rib cartilage to the point that he was capable of achieving successful coitus. The patient also got married and was able to impregnate his wife using this neophallus. The urethra was also lengthened by a tubular scrotal flap. This technique was adopted by several surgeons in the 1940s, but it was Sir Harold Gilley's operation in 1946, as mentioned earlier on his patient Lawrence Michael Dillon, that resulted in the birth of uroplastic surgery and remained the gold standard for the following 40 years. His was a modification and improvement on Dr. Bogoraz's procedure. Before we move on, I have to tell you a little more about Dr. Bogoraz. Now while much can be made of his surgical career, I wanted to share just one story about him which is almost too incredible to believe. On September 8, 1920, while walking to the hospital, Dr. Bogoraz tried to jump into a moving streetcar, but wound up falling off of it in front of the wheels. Both legs were severely injured and he had to have the left leg amputated at the thigh and the right leg amputated below the knee. Despite this, only two weeks after the operation, Dr. Bogoraz resumed ward rounds while confined to a wheelchair. But here's the really wild part. Six weeks after having both legs amputated, he was back in the operating room standing on his prostheses. The next major advance in female-to-male transgender genital reconstruction came in the early 1970s, with new breakthroughs and techniques, including the use of pedicles. A pedicle is where tissue is taken from one site and moved to another while still connected to its original blood supply. This was first outlined by a Colombian surgeon named Chia, who described a compound-pedicled musculocutaneous gracilis phalloplasty in 1972. Now, This involved using the gracilis muscle, which is the most superficial muscle of the inner thigh, along with the overlying skin, to create a neophallus. The muscle provided a contractile element, and by using the skin of the medial thigh, which contains the cutaneous branch of the obturator nerve, the patient would also experience erogenous, thermal, pain, and tactile sensations. Like many of these breakthroughs, it was first used on a cis male patient, in this case one who'd undergone a penectomy for cancer. The development of the operating microscope and microvascular anastomotic techniques led to the next type of reconstruction the use of a free flap. This meant being able to take tissue from distant sites in the body and use it to form the neophallus. While a number of different sites have been used, I'll just focus on the one that is now considered the standard, which is the forearm free flap. This was first described by Tishang Chang of Shanghai, China in 1984, and has since undergone some modifications, but here's the basic concept. The flap is taken from the forearm including a segment of the radial artery and cephalic vein, and in the original description, a portion of the radial bone. This is then used to create a tube within a tube, meaning a neourethra runs through the neophallus. The radial bone is attached to the pubis. The radial artery is joined to the femoral artery via a saphenous vein graft. The cephalic vein to the femoral vein and even the lateral anti cutaneous nerve of the flap attached to the pedendal nerve to maximize sensory recovery. Pretty amazing, right? Now, obviously, there's a lot more to it than that, but you get the basic idea. And of course, there is a whole different topic of penile prostheses that can be included in phalloplasty as well, but we won't get into that. So we've covered the pedicle flap phalloplasty, the free flap phalloplasty, And now we will consider the third of the main modern techniques, the metoidioplasty. If you recall from earlier in the podcast, this was the use of the clitoris to create a neophallus. Before we get into the details, a little review of clitoris anatomy is required. Hippocrates was likely the first to describe the clitoris, but gave it little consideration, naming it colomula or uvula as he postulated that it only protects the vagina as the uvula protects the throat. Another classic-era anatomist went further, describing a role in female sexual pleasure. But the great Galen's theory was that, quote, "...all parts, then, that men have, women have too. the difference between them lying in only one thing, namely that in women the parts are within, whereas in men they are outside." In this theory, the vagina corresponded to the penis, and so the clitoris had no role. The Middle Ages were not a time for enlightenment and knowledge, so we'll skip ahead to some of the giants of Renaissance anatomy. While Vesalius, despite his progressive attitude towards anatomy, see podcast 81, denied the existence of the clitoris in normal female anatomy, noting its presence as a sign of hermaphroditism, his protege Rialdo Colombo claimed to have been the first to describe its anatomy and function in 1559 CE. His contemporary, Gabriel Fallopio, the anatomist of Fallopian tube fame, made the same claim, but given their professional rivalry, it's hard to say which of the two was first. What we can say for certain is that they were both wrong, as in addition to some of the classic anatomists, the clitoris was also known to Persian and Arabic writers on medicine and surgery. No matter. By the 17th century, more detailed anatomical descriptions were being made, particularly by a Dutch anatomist named Regnier de Graaf, including detail on its root, muscles, blood, and nerve supply. And I do have to read an interesting quote from him. Quote, If these parts of the pudendum, which refers to external genitalia, particularly female, had not been endowed with such an exquisite sensitivity to pleasure and passion, No woman would be willing to take upon herself the irksome nine-months-long business of gestation, the painful and often fatal process of expelling the fetus, and the worrisome and care-ridden task of raising children. I guess that's one theory. But de Graaff did emphasize the need to distinguish nympha, which is the name given to the labia minora, from the clitoris, and always use this anatomical term. Now before we continue, let's talk about the name clitoris. This was consistently used from the 17th century CE onwards, but there is some controversy over the name's origins. It may be from a Greek word derived from another Greek word meaning to rub, but this same Greek word is connected to the word hill and is translated by some as little hill, which may be a clever play on words. Others speculate that its Greek origins point to words meaning to sheath, or another that means a key, latch, or hook. I guess some ancient mysteries will remain hidden. Now, we don't have time to get into the history of surgery of the clitoris, but if you're interested, have a listen to the suture tale at the end of this episode for a rather strange and disturbing tale of clitoridectomy. But listener beware, it is an unsettling story. Why does the anatomy of the clitoris matter, though, which was our original question? Well, our old friend Galen was wrong. The corresponding structure to the penis in females is not the vagina, but rather the clitoris. If we look at embryology, we learn that the glands, penis, and clitoris arise from the same structure, the genital tubercle, and the clitoris consists of erectile bodies, which are internal, with the glands clitoris being the only external manifestation, which is midline, non-erectile, and densely neural, as one paper put it. Another statement, this one made in a paper from 1995, gives a fairly concise, if simplified way of looking at it, quote, the clitoris is thus, in many details, a small version of the penis, but it differs basically in being entirely separate from the urethra, end quote. Knowledge of its blood supply, innervation, and in ligaments is crucial for the operation we're about to explore. First described in 1973 by Durfee and Rowland, this involves creating a neophallus from a hormonally hypertrophied clitoris by androgen therapy. Metoidioplasty's benefits include avoiding complex multi-stage surgery, limited scarring at the external genitalia, and avoiding a telltale donor site scar. But more importantly, this operation preserves sensation of the clitoris and creates a functional neophallus that allows for urination and sexual function. Here's the basic idea. The ligaments that attach to the clitoris are cut to straighten and lengthen it. The urethra is lengthened using the urethral plate and anterior vaginal wall. The labia majora are used to create a scrotum into which testicular implants can be placed. Now, disadvantages include a smaller neophallus which is typically insufficient for full penetrative sexual intercourse, but it does preserve erogenous sensation, has a satisfying cosmetic appearance, and allows patients to urinate while standing. Now before we wrap things up, there's another medical issue with transgender patients that may not be immediately obvious, but is important to be aware of for both caregivers, and patients. And that is the issue of cancer screening. Part of this is due to the fact that the possibility of discrimination discourages transgender people from seeking medical care. But another is that screening programs for gynecological and genitourinary cancers may fail to identify eligible transgender participants. For example, trans women may not recognize the risk of prostate cancer. and while only four cases have been reported in the literature, This is thought to be a gross underestimate. Another aspect is the use of sex hormones, which in excessive doses and continued without medical guidance can increase the risk of cancer. And finally, this population has shown through studies to have increased rates of smoking, alcohol use, HIV, and HPV compared to the general population, all of which also increase the risk of cancer. Clearly, there is still much to learn and understand for many in the medical community to do better for transgender patients. The good news is that things are starting to change. And if this episode has inspired you to learn more, let me direct you to the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, an organization aiming to educate surgeons and other healthcare providers around the world on how to treat this patient population, focusing on mental health, endocrinology, and surgery for trans women and trans men. Their website has a downloadable free book on standards of care available in 18 different languages. The address is www.wpath.org. Go check it out. And watch the documentary Born to Be. I promise you will not regret it. I realize this has been a long episode, covering some very serious topics. But in my reading for it, I came across a strange and entertaining tale that I simply couldn't resist telling. So if you're willing to indulge me for a few more minutes, I think it would be well worth it. This is the story of the English surgeon Isaac Baker Brown and his controversial practice of clitoridectomy. Born in 1812 in Essex, England, Brown was elected as a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1848. By the 1850s, he was an eminent gynecologist in London. He published a book called On Surgical Diseases of Women in 1854, helped found St. Mary's Hospital in 1858, and shortly thereafter opened his own hospital called the London surgical home for women. Brown popularized fistula repair as pioneered by Marion Sims, see Podcast 51, and was a highly respected and sought-after surgeon. But like many Victorian era physicians, he subscribed to some beliefs that may seem a bit uh, strange to us. For example, Brown subscribed to the, quote, psychology of the ovary, end quote, theory, which was that all medical and emotional problems of women were considered to be based upon some internal malfunction of the ovaries. This belief rationalized the frequent practice of ovariotomy as a cure for female emotional disorders. No word on whether there was a psychology of the testicle theory. Now before we continue, I want to share with you another example of a strange theory that combines surgery and psychiatry. In the late 1800s, some physicians began to postulate that focal collections of bacteria in the body could be the cause of mental disorders, and this was given the name auto-intoxication. And in 1913, the spirochetes, which is a type of bacteria that cause syphilis, were discovered in the brains of patients suffering from general paralysis of the insane, as it was called, which we now recognize as late-stage syphilis. This seemed to confirm an infectious cause for mental illness, and one psychiatrist in particular took up this new theory with gusto, Henry Cotton, the superintendent of the Trenton State Hospital. As early as 1916, Cotton and his team began to put this theory into practice, removing unhealthy teeth. But as patients didn't recover, they quickly moved on to removing tonsils and sinuses, then spleens, cervixes, and even entire colons. Cotton claimed incredible success with this method, quoting a cure rate as high as 85% in an age before there were really any effective medications for psychiatric disorders. Remove the infected part and you cure the madness, as one paper put it. He became famous throughout the U.S. and Europe and was a sought-after speaker. However, back at Trenton, the mortality rates ran up to over 30%. Eventually, this came out and he began to be attacked by colleagues, and the New Jersey Senate investigated him in 1925, but he was supported by some eminent physicians and surgeons and continued to operate on patients until his sudden death by heart attack in 1933 at the age of 56. So strange. Maybe I should do an episode on psychosurgery. There seems to be a lot of material there. Anyways, let's get back to Doc Brown. In 1866, he published a book entitled On the Curability of Certain Forms of Insanity, Epilepsy, Catalepsy, and Hysteria in Females, in which he stated that, quote, peripheral excitement of the branches of the pudic nerve, which is a clever way to describe female masturbation, gave rise to a disease that could be divided into eight distinct stages, beginning with hysteria, developing into epilepsy, and culminating in either idiocy or death, end quote. Brown proposed that all feminine weaknesses, in fact, could be cured by excision of the clitoris and labia minora. A quick side note, this research led to the discovery that the labia minora used to be called the nymphae, after the nymphs of ancient Greek folklore, sort of nature deities depicted as beautiful maidens. Anyways, Brown would do this under chloroform, and then, delicate listeners skip ahead for, say, 15 seconds, he would use hooked forceps to seize the clitoris and then pass a cautery around the base. He would also use the cautery on the labia and vulva, causing terrible injury. Sorry. Now, he was not alone in performing clitoridectomy, a list which includes the famous obstetrician Sir James Simpson, but he was certainly the most public about it and was met with antagonism from the medical profession, rightly so. However, this may have had more to do with his desire to gain public recognition for his cure for epilepsy and hysteria, and less a rejection of the principles behind the operation. Oh, so close, 19th century doctors. The book led to a scathing review in the British Medical Journal, and he found colleagues abandoning him and his reputation on the rocks. And so, in said journal, he called for the appointment of a committee to investigate results of clitoridectomy and offered to refrain from performing any more until the verdict was in. On April 3rd of 1867, the Obstetrical Society met to hear testimony concerning Brown's surgical procedures and professional conduct. It was a full house. Now let me quote Brown directly in his own defence at the investigation. Quote, "The whole of this hinges upon the neglect of the council in investigating the subject of clitoridectomy as scientific men. Instead of examining the subject, which I challenged to do again and again, they have neglected it and tried to get rid of it by expelling me. I maintain my late colleagues in this room have all performed this operation." I have come to the conclusion that the operation of clitoridectomy was a justifiable operation. Not my operation, recollect, gentlemen, but an operation, as Dr. Hayden has showed, that has been practiced from the time of Hippocrates and has been mentioned by all writers since that period again and again, quote. Despite this full-throated self-defense, the Society's members voted him out. Brown resigned from the Medical Society of London and the board of the hospital that he had founded and virtually disappeared from public life for five years. He then suffered a series of strokes, and in an act of kindness, the British Medical Journal announced the Baker-Brown Charitable Fund in April of 1872, asking its readers to help the outcast who was, quote, "...suffering from severe illness, paralysis, and great pecuniary distress," end quote. Despite this act of charity, Brown died within a year, passing away at the age of 61, on February 3rd, 1873. Unfortunately, the clitoridectomy did not die with him and persisted, particularly in America, where the last recorded operation done for emotional disorders occurred in the 1940s on a five-year-old girl. Of course, female genital mutilation continues to this day, and it is estimated that over 200 million women and girls living today have undergone this practice. But that, perhaps, is a story for another day. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, the 100th, we will focus on one of the original surgery legends, whom we've touched on in previous occasions, but will now get his own podcast, Galen. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.